Hello, and thank you so much for tuning into the Education Burrito, a podcast that unwraps the everyday challenges in learning and teaching in education, exploring the ins and outs and highs and lows and different pedagogy approaches, enhancing student engagement amongst everything in education. My name is Q-Sum, and each episode I'll be joined by special guests as we unwrap the Education Burrito. I'm very excited to be joined in this episode by someone who is a psychologist. They're quite big on behaviour and social networking, who also happen to be a native Yorkshire person. Uh, They like to support students and colleagues through learning and teaching, and more recently decided to still support students on their graduation day virtually. Apparently, they also like to document what I think it is, a rabbit, Bella, eating some juicy apple, which I think Bella approves. Anyhow, one of the successful things they've done in the past was doing a TEDx talk, which I watched over and over again because I couldn't stop. Actually, it was that talk which inspired me to invite them along to today's podcast episode. And oh, they also chair the BPS Cyber Psychology section. I think you know who I'm talking about, right? It's the amazing Dr. Linda Kay, aka the Cyber Doctor. Linda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, I, th- I think I know who, who I am <laughs> from, that, uh, from that description, so thank you. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. Perhaps let's start us off then with what one interesting thing have you done recently? Oh, what have I done recently? I've been, been doing quite a bit of, of stuff recently in and amongst um, being locked down. But I think one thing that I, I have been doing that's um, interesting recently is actually kind of consolidating a lot of the really exciting things that I enjoy doing that I've gained from doing my job as an academic and and setting up something that that can possibly be a way of not necessarily an exit route for academia but um, something that channels all the things I enjoy about my job in a a way that means I can I can continue doing the things I really like so some potential consultancy research sorts of things so yeah that's quite exciting that's just starting to to develop a little bit so that is quite exciting um although a little bit (laughs) (laughs) nerve-wracking wow I think we've got to keep an eye out for that right so I think there's two things that I kind of want to chat to you about. First of all, about your role as a cyber doctor, and then obviously the other thing about emojis. <laughs> but perhaps to we'll start with your role as the cyber doctor, how did you come up with that name or how did you get into this kind of area? Um, well, I think I, I kind of fell into cyber psychology, really. When I started my PhD back in 2007, um, I, I was doing it on the psychology of digital gaming. And at that point, I didn't really know that cyber psychology kind of existed. I wasn't really aware of it. But, you know, when, when you work in academia, you move from PhD to being an early career researcher, you, you do start to broaden your perspective out a little bit. And I became a bit more familiar from the, the networks I became part of that this, this was sort of a thing. And uh, my interests um, in in research broadened out, which again, you know, happens to to a lot of people. And I became aware about how the things I was interested in actually fit in a, a much broader area. So I just started to do work with a lot more people. I started to to broaden my research interests and and areas of research out, and just started to become known within this area as somebody who was. Who was, who was doing a lot of work in this area, who in some ways was leading some areas of research. And it just seemed to be a, a kind of name that I think, I think originally sort of was a bit of a joke, really, but I kind of just put it on my Twitter profile and people then started using it. You know, I, I didn't want to necessarily put it there to use but it was more of a way of helping me express what my interests were in a kind of concise way so people just started using it 
and actually that's something now that um you know has become quite marketable which is is quite interesting thinking about you know if I would want to develop myself more kind of in a private sector then that might that might be quite a, a nice way to market um, myself um, in a quite unique way so yeah I think that's that's sort of how it happened it happened quite organically really and that yeah that's that's where that came from really <laughs> when I first saw your um, you know the, the name cyber doctor I always thought there's some sort of robotic kind of <laughs> mask um <laughs> and you wearing a doctor coat, you know, the white coat. It's like, it's quite weird, I think. It's quite, was it, has it all been a positive note about the name or? Yeah, yeah, from what I can hear anyway, nobody is, that I'm aware of has come out and criticised it. So for me, it was just a sort of way of promoting an identity. It's like cyber psychology is the specialism and I am an academic doctor. So it kind of, it's it's sort of valid in terms of who I am really but no I haven't really heard anything negative whether there are people who might have negative perceptions but I have not been been made aware of that but trying to express identity in a Twitter bio which only has a certain amount of characters you know it's, it's a way of trying to promote that concisely. Maybe we can move on to the the work that you do so from a TEDx talk I kind of watched it over and over again because one I just really want to know a bit more about it and two I was reflecting about the types of emojis that I use and so then you were talking about the five different traits of personalities so maybe do you want to just share a bit about what you do yes so um I mean more generally so my area my primary area is the psychology of digital gaming and and I am most interested really in the social aspects of that and and how not just gaming but actually more broadly how online settings bring us together how that can help promote um social inclusion sort of and mitigate against loneliness and and how that you know is positive for well-being so that that's sort of an, an overarching theme i guess of a lot of the stuff i'm interested in and what i sort of try to get from my research but the emoji thing kind of it came about really because i was working with a, a colleague who we originally went into that research because she works in the area of autism and, and she wanted to kind of look at um, how emoji would be you know, recognised or appraised or understood by, by people who might be on the autistic spectrum. And I mean, we never actually have got to that stage of actually doing that research. But what we, we realised was there were that earlier or more fundamental things we needed to find out before we we could move on to do that um, and so we just started to to think well what what do emoji reveal about us what what can we tell about people's personality what what might drive people to use emoji in different way and then um, my colleague at Edge Hill uh, Dr Helen Wall then kind of got on board and her research predominantly is about how we understand people accurately um, in terms of their personality so that added that dimension onto the research and it kind of just developed from there and um, we never, I never actually kind of went in expecting that the emoji thing would be something that I'd be known for. Um, <laughs> um, but it just, because of the implications of the findings, it got a lot of media attention and, and that's where I suppose my reputation then, you know, went hand in hand with that. So yeah, I've just become known as somebody who's an expert on emoji, but that, that was never the intention of, of doing that research. But it certainly has been a pivotal moment really in, for me and, and hopefully in, in getting sort of cyber psychology research insights out into the public as well. You know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, yes, yeah, so that's how that came about. And yeah, then a lot of the kind of media stuff, the TEDx talk kind of came from that. And yeah, I suppose the rest is, is history from there really. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's brilliant. And I think the million pound question is, 
does emoji impact student engagement and learning and teaching do you think um, I think that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, that's not something I've looked at specifically. Um, I do know there is research that did look at how the use of emoticons, not necessarily emoji, but emoticons actually, when that's used in student feedback, how that um, is appraised by students. And, and actually the findings of that, from what I can remember briefly, it was a few years ago this was published. Generally, you know, the, the students actually thought that the, the tutors were were warmer so they perceived them as being warmer in terms of character when they, they used them but actually that kind of went against their perception of their competence so you know didn't necessarily believe that they maybe were as capable as tutors which obviously isn't a particularly good thing so you know I think the use of things like emoticons if you think about it in the way, way that it might be used for student feedback I think there's some merit in it to some extent but I think you know looking at how they're used and by whom and to whom is really important. I mean, I, I sometimes use them in comments to students. Um, I wouldn't say I use them extensively and I certainly don't use it as a consistent thing, but if there's a certain student who I know, uh, you know, I, I do get to know my students quite well and, and they know what kind of personality I am. They know that I am I'm this person who, who does research on emoji. And sometimes I think it can work in that context when you have that kind of dynamic relationship already. But um, I, I think it's using them sparingly and, and as appropriate is, is the kind of key take home on that really. So, I mean, student engagement is a big, big concept. And I mean, I've just used the example of how to use it in, in feedback and things. But I mean, there's, there's probably a brain, range of other places that they could be used. How that affects student engagement I'm not sure to be honest. <laughs> mm, I think that there's always a something can do maybe in the future looking at that but you've mentioned about students actually in the you know the, getting students feedback and using Emojicon. How do you ensure that students are engaged in your class? Do you use uh, the work that you do and influence them that way or by nudging them that way not so much influence but um, nudging them to give you feedback or how do you engage students? In a number of different ways. So the way I, I used sort of this um, last academic year sort of before Christmas actually was I'd, for one of my modules, which is my final year optional cyber psychology module. We actually made use of Microsoft Teams for that and the students really enjoyed that and they, that was particularly useful for helping them engage with each other actually um, and collaborate with each other because they were doing sort of a group-based assessment and they found that actually a really intuitive platform to be able to support each other and they reported how that actually helped them learn more and they, they'd learned a lot of things from their peers. There was a platform where that could sort of help that process which not really experienced so much before so I think creating environments and platforms where they can support each other that can promote that sort of social engagement which again can bring all, on all sorts of benefits so that's something I always try and create in what I do so they can support each other other ways I mean for me it's in higher education so much of the university experience is about the self-directed aspects of learning and this is where a lot of the policy in higher education tends to just be adapted from school-based education which for me is not particularly useful because it's an entirely different type of learning so I mean there's there's one thing about student engagement in classrooms and a lot of that I guess is through conversation you know and and really getting to know who my students are, that, that's really, really important to me. So the next academic year is going to bring challenges to that, which, which does worry me a little bit. 
Um, but again, these online platforms can be one way to start to mitigate that a little bit so they can have these discussions with each other and I've sort of encouraged them, you know, or going to be encouraged them to create their own bitmoji of themselves if they want to and a way of helping them express a bit of their personality and use that as a, as a mechanism to try and get to know each other a little bit. But yes, yeah, so the classroom engagement is one thing, but then the, the engagement in the self-directed stuff is another whole issue. And I'm, I am really passionate about trying to find creative ways of doing that. And I think for me, Microsoft Teams worked really, really well as a platform for that for my, for my students last academic year. So that that's sort of the way I, I'm continuing to try and do that. And a lot of that is through using inquiry-based methods like problem-based learning. So helping them be curious about about finding solutions to problems, to real world problems, to authentic problems. Things like develop a game based strategy to try and support an aspect of well-being. I mean, well-being is such a, a global issue and, you know, games are a 21st century sort of innovation, or 20th century innovation actually, that actually can, can support that. So, you know, it's, a, it's a, an authentic problem and, and some of the solutions they come up with, the ways that they work, the processes they go through to get there are outstanding, absolutely outstanding. And, you know, they get the most from them from, from those kind of approaches. So anything that can help them be curious about their learning and, and in, enjoy working with each other and find solutions, for me, the best way of engaging uh, learners. Mm-hmm. I think being curious is always good, right? I like to be curious about things, hence I'm, I'm interviewing you because I'm curious about your role and the things that you do. But I'm curious now as to, have you ever had any students communicating with you via emojis only? No. <laughs> because of the work that you do. Not, by, not solely by emoji use, actually. I'm just trying to think if any of them have used them at all. I think normally, if it's sort of written communication, it tends to be by email and they don't necessarily use Outlook and that doesn't really lend itself particularly well to that. So, yeah, I think it had, if it had been through WhatsApp, which I've never used with, with students anyway, but if something like that might be more likely, but um, no, it's, uh, that's not something that's happened actually. Thankfully, because I probably wouldn't understand what they were saying. <laughs> but I guess you can then tell, um, tell their personalities, right? about what emojis they use to some extent let's get back to the point that you make about engaging with your students uh, using the work that you do what are the benefits do you think that can bring into the educational spaces with your work I think it's it's finding ways to make the ideas scalable because the modules I work on typically are quite small modules and so you can develop those relationships and have that sort of that that really good support. It it does become more difficult when you you're extending into bigger modules. And again, I think this for me is where things like Microsoft Teams actually as a platform can really be quite scalable because what it can do is provide you an opportunity for students to take some autonomy of their learning and, and of each other. And actually as a tutor, your role is actually much more much more reduced and you know if you think about it for a sort of third year undergraduate module by that point you know you'd hope your students would be able to self-direct largely to some extent and and know how to resource and things like that so I think it is for me is finding ways of actually mapping what I do and and thinking how does that work at different points in a course so what would this approach look like if it was in a first year and that would require more scaffolded support so for me it's about trying to apply the framework that I know does work well and and think what are the particular requirements of particular student groups or the particular year groups or particular types of courses and of course that that was going to vary so yeah I mean I, I do quite regularly disseminate sort of things I've done via my blog 
because of you know through twitter and things so it gets quite a lot of exposure there and i suppose that's one way of getting other educators to sort of even think about is there a way i could apply this to my practice then i think that's you know that's a step forward <laughs> yes no, that's brilliant i think on the flip side then what are the risks do you think that can bring into the educational spaces i think one risk is that sometimes with those kind of approaches there's there's less focus on me as a tutor as the expert um, and so less focus on those more instructional based approaches and more traditional types of teaching and learning approaches and possibly the risk of the perception that that's not standard practice and it might be something that they're not quite as used to so unless they've tried it don't necessarily see the benefit and thinking well what am I paying this money for if I've only got half an hour tutorial this week and you know I'm doing all the work but you know actually the kind of benefit that they get from that experience is actually probably tenfold <laughs> than me just standing there telling them something so I think the risk for me is about perception of responsibility and accountability and ownership I mean I've got to say from having run modules in this way for many years now I've never had that problem and I feel very grateful that students have always been very just very accommodating and and, and actually recognizing the, the value that they're getting from that and always got really nice positive feedback from that and really got a lot from from that experience so I think that possibly is a, again because it's later on in their course I think maybe first year students would possibly need a bit more scaffolding around that and that that maybe brings on a different sort of issue but yeah um, and so that for me is probably one of the risks and something I'm always very mindful about. So I think the work that you do is brilliant I mean there's a lot going on with what you do and then your consultancy job in the future as well. Many people who are listening to this might be feeling a bit you know less confident if they want to get started in this or even just dipping their toes in. What would be your like Linda's top tip for this area? Yes, I mean, things like problem-based learning, I think you can scale it up. So certainly I introduce my students to it in a kind of, in a, in a sort of a micro form to start with. So just trying it. And I think as an educator, you, you do have to be confident to to kind of almost let your students go out into the wild a little bit. And you have to have that confidence that, you know, you don't have as much control over whether they're likely to obtain the learning outcomes that they're meant to. So I think there's, a, there's an element of, of trust um, I think my top tips are things like start small, do it on a smaller scale with fewer students, students perhaps in, you know, later on in their course, that's often better because they have a kind of established skill set already, so you're not starting from scratch. I'd always say, you know, play around with platforms that work for you. And again, I always, whenever I'm trying something new, is I'm very honest with my students and say, look, I've not done this before keep talking to me is it working is it not working and and they will they'll they'll give me that feedback and and that helps that helps me know that okay it's it's not a disaster <laughs> um, and then that helps me then reassure a next cohort that all oh, students were saying you know they enjoyed using it and da, da, da. so having that continual evaluation process i think is important to know what's working what's not working and yourself as a, an educator evaluating as you go along not just relying on student feedback but understanding your own role and what's working what might you change next year for example so yeah those would be some top tips and work with other people who who might have more experience of using different techniques or or be willing to kind of support the process or, or share their tips you know it, does, it doesn't have to be something to do completely on your own yeah, that's good so if we're looking into the future then how do you think the work that you've described or are doing will evolve in the higher education 
it's difficult to say. I do think pandemic has actually in some ways been the, the time where people have started to reconceptualize a little bit on what works and what doesn't work in higher education. So to me that there might be something there about people starting to then review can these sort of student-led directed kind of approaches, student-centered approaches actually there might be something that comes from this that that sort of changes those sort of traditional views of higher education which in, in some ways is is positive i don't know it's very difficult because i think what what we're constantly battling with is a perception that about universities being about providing degrees and that it's manufacturer student they come in they come out with a degree and it's a very reductionist view of what universities do and what the purpose of, of learning is and when you're battling those perceptions and you have students coming in who just want to get a degree and you've got parents or the media telling them that you know you should be having this amount of contact hours to know that you're getting a good value for money when you've got those perceptions that that makes it really difficult to actually convince anybody about being creative or innovative which is always a difficult thing to do so I think as long as those perceptions exist it's, it's going to be very difficult for individual educators to do actually to be innovative and certainly I think universities as well feel the pressure and and do want tutors to be accountable for how many contact hours have you got this week you know if you do any changes you've got to sort of change do this amendment for me and it makes things very restrictive so the systems make it really, really challenging. And I think that is such a difficult thing for individual educators to negotiate. So the simple answer is, I really don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. You've shared a, really, a lot in terms of what you've done and the things that other people can get involved as well. I think even though the words of cyber doctor sounds so difficult, <laughs> I think that there are things that people can actually do is quite easy. So I think to end this episode, we're going to have a short firing round. Nothing much about your research. Uh, this is all about you. So you should be able to hypothetically be able to answer it just for us to know you a bit more. Okay. So first question is, if you are to pick one learning and or teaching platform or tool, what would you be? I think it has to be Microsoft Teams. <laughs> I'm not on commission with Microsoft, by the way. I do talk about it a lot, but I'm not on commission with Microsoft. <laughs> Three words to describe yourself as an educator. Creative, reflective, and student-centered. With, with a dash in the middle. <laughs> yeah, this is one word. <laughs> uh, okay. What do you do to recharge your energy after a long, stressful day at work? Um, it depends. Uh, walking is something I greatly enjoy doing, and that is a great way to de-stress. If the weather's rubbish, then I don't tend to walk. I'm a bit of a fair weather walker. Um, so in those cases, um, usually just netflix or a film or, or something what the emoji movie absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> that is an abysmal film <laughs> i'm a bit of a right. film buff i could never watch that <laughs> it goes too much against my morals <laughs> other than your phone what would be the one best thing so one best thing only to carry around to show students and our colleagues in corridors hmm. My bunny rabbit. Do you normally carry that? No, <laughs> but it would be good. Hypothetically, it would be good. <laughs> why, why, why bunny rabbit out of curiosity? Well, because it brings on so many conversations. You know, when I share any pictures of, of Bella, my bunny rabbit, people, it just draws people in. People, it, you know, you have conversations about pets and that's one thing I think from lockdown when people are doing these sort of meetings online you, you are getting to see people's pets and these lovely conversations are happening so it's a conversation starter wow so, so yeah. Bella actually has a place 
in your office at university? No, she doesn't. But hypothetically, if she, if she could, she would. <laughs> she has my place at, at home. She has a place. So this is my office at the moment. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just imagining, trying to imagine how you would carry Bella down the corridor when you're going to classes, like one hand with this, another hand with Bella. Oh well. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> what? Um, what are your favourite hashtags? Um, I mean, I don't know if it would say it was a favourite, but I think a powerful one is things like Me Too. That one's an important one because that's brought on so much collective action and and, and behaviours. So I think that one's a powerful one. I mean, favourite probably isn't the best word, but powerful one. Academic Twitter ones are good ones. So that you know, scientific Twitter and, and things like that. Anything that again brings like-minded people, support, mentoring kind of things are always good ones as well. So th those kind of things. Uh, that bring certain communities together on Twitter. Brilliant. Tea or coffee? Depends on the time of day. Um, I'd say coffee. <laughs> Are you more of a Bitmoji person or Emoji person? Oh, depends on the platform. Overall, I, I tend to use Emoji more, um, but I do like Bitmoji. I use Bitmoji mainly on Twitter, but Emoji more broadly, so probably Emoji. <laughs> Next question might be a bit harder then. GIF or, or GIF or Emoji? Yeah, it depends on the platform. Um, I'd say GIF because they're just fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's your most used emoji? The crying with laughter one, without a doubt. Um, again, particularly if it's on things like WhatsApp. I share a lot of silly content with people. So yeah, definitely the, the laugh, crying with laughter emoji. Fair enough. Invisibility or super strengths? Mm -hmm. Invisibility. Favourite music genre? I love musicals. Uh, I'd say probably that without a doubt. <laughs> What's your favourite musical then? Probably, um, probably Phantom. I fell in love with that years ago, and I don't think I've ever fallen out of love with it. I, I love a lot of different musicals, but yeah, probably Phantom. If you. If you're not the Cyber Doctor, what would you be? I would probably. I'd probably be some kind of do coaching or something. I, I have got background in coaching, so I'd probably be doing that in, in some kind of description, I think. If you could teleport right now, where would you go? Probably to see my family. Fair enough. <laughs> Your favourite learning or teaching hero? Ooh, a lot. I think I, and a lot of people on the, the hashtag on Twitter, the learning, teaching, higher education community. I don't know if I've got a, a specific favourite. I don't think I could identify any specific one because there are a lot. <laughs> I don't want to pick. <laughs> <laughs> and finally then, because our podcast is called The Education Burrito, what's your favourite burrito filling or fillings? Oh, anything. <laughs> I love Mexican food, so anything. Anything? Yeah. <laughs> so what do you not want in your burrito? <laughs> I don't know. Well, anything that, that sort of lends itself to a burrito is good you know things like you know mints and things like that is, is good oh yeah <laughs> yeah that's brilliant well that's all we have time for in this episode and if our listeners want to find out more about what you do linda how can they do so well i have a very active twitter presence so you can follow me on twitter and um, so it's linda kk um, or you can subscribe to my youtube channel or you can or you can go on my, my um, just type in Lin Dr Linda K Wix and you'll probably find it. Oh, that, that's brilliant. I'm sure be sure to check out your YouTube channel as well. Um, again, a big massive thank you to you to Dr Linda K for sharing with us the work that you do. No problem, thank you. Thank you so much for your time and tuning into the Education Burrito. 
make sure to hit the subscribe button on whichever platform you're listening on and be sure to like it and share it on social media tagging us at the hashtag the education burrito if you have enjoyed our chat today and fancy coming onto the show no matter as a student or member of staff do drop us a message as we unwrap learning and teaching in the education burrito